0: A most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles.
1: Buck Benny, the two fisted, quick triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses.
2: Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. We are here with more Orson Welles for you. This is the fourth of five kind of a five episode sort of mini series within this Orson Welles commentaries. And I will turn it over to Vincent to say kind of where we are and what's going on with Orson at the time and. Uh really interesting one to me. I'm all these ones, all of these are interesting, but this one um just has a different feel about it. So go ahead, Vincent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So unlike previous episodes where it seems like Wells has had so many irons in the fire and doing so many things, there's surprisingly little that's going on with his career other than this event. This event does seem to dominate newspaper coverage about um him in particular. Um you know he's doing a a small show at the Copacabana still, but Around the World is closed, and his other plans to, for example, stage a King Lear um, on Broadway isn't working out for a variety of reasons. And so this is, you know, this is Wells's main job. And you know it's funny because uh, this episode he seems, uh, I wouldn't say less focused, but he seems unprepared, and particularly about the Woodard case, which I'm going to suggest might indi- should indicate how actually little he's driving this i mean he's certainly a mouthpiece but uh i'm gonna i'm gonna give credit where credit's due to a variety of people here but i do want to start by um just mentioning a couple things so wells begins this um, episode by talking about the incident at aiken which we talked about in a previous episode where they are driving his movie out of town he plays a small role in a small movie and the city of aiken sort of takes their frustration out on his uh calling wrongly accusing that their town and their police of uh, blinding Isaac Woodard and they run the movie out and they burn the posters. Um, he mentioned specifically that this is not the first time his films and his work have been banned by organizations. He mentioned specifically Nazi Germany as well as fascist Italy and Spain. Um, to be clear, it's less; those instances were less about him in particular and more about those organizations just banning films in general, specifically almost all Hollywood films, anything that could even loosely be associated with like themes of American democracy. I mean, they just basically ban most movies. So even though he seems to be suggesting it's him that's getting banned, it's not really the one case where it is actually him and his movie is Hearst. Um, It's often thought of as a myth that Hearst really uh, hampers on Citizen Kane and Orson Welles for, um but that's that's actually completely true he did uh heavily ban and tell his newspaper syndicate that you cannot talk about Citizen Kane you cannot push this film because even though Citizen Kane um is based off of a lot of uh American tycoons Hearst is perhaps the most obvious right Kane runs a newspaper organization that monopolizes most um newspapers you know he hasn't a not really an affair in the movie, but kind of an affair, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Hearst really thought it was about him and banned it. Uh, What I want to do, though, is even though Wells sort of thinks it's a joke about how overblown Aiken is taking this, like, oh, really, they're burning me on the street, they're hanging, he even mentions they hung an effigy of him. Um, you know, even though he sort of laughs it off, I found it rather disturbing in the sense of, um, you know, it's the same sort of uh cult person cult sort of mentality and systemic racism because again this was run by the police in Aiken as well as the city council that um you know caused violence racial violence against african americans in particular and he says oh you know i definitely shouldn't go to aiken and deliver my apology well these same sort of systems are what's uh you know uh, lynching african americans and so i found that rather disturbing um you know, he doesn't make a big point on it, but he has other points. Um, anyone want to add anything? I have a couple more things, but I thought we could pause there. Move it around a little bit.
2: <laughs> no, that's great. That's really in- insightful. Thank you, Vincent. Uh, Terry, wh- what do you have from on this front?
3: Well, uh, only talking about um, the Isaac Woodard case, uh, first of all, I have to say I I was surprised that the master of the spoken word kept mispronouncing his name. Um and I, I, it just had to be that he got it stuck in his ear that way. I don't know what other explanation there could be for it. Um, I mean, Woodard was not as common a name as Woodward, which is what Wells kept saying. He also and went...
2: Has, sorry, Terry. Yeah. Has, have we ever heard Wells call him Woodard by the correct name? No, I don't think so. No. So basically, he had it wrong from the beginning. I think that's right. And just uh, never that's... figured it
3: out that it's pronounced differently. Probably, yeah, and probably nobody wanted to correct him. Yeah, uh, but um, he also, and and I don't, it seems like he played with the name of the uh, Batesburg police chief, yeah. uh, whose name, whose last name was Schull, S-C-H-U-L-L, but he pronounced it variously Shaw and Shore. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people will intentionally mispronounce the name of someone they want to mock. Obviously, that wasn't the case with Isaac Woodard, but Wells, you know, I, I remember, um uh, George Bush Sr. calling Saddam Hussein Saddam. Uh, yeah. And, you know, kind of not, uh, annoy him a little bit by mispronouncing his name. So that might have been part of what was going on uh, with Wells and the police chief. But obviously, these are small matters compared to the the larger one, which is that Wells was still um, championing this case and continuing to defend his position on this regardless of the, uh, the response from Aiken. Uh, and I, again, I think I've said before that I can understand if your town was wrongly accused that you would want to defend yourself, but they did miss the point. And, um, I, I want to just go to the end of this where Wells receives a, a, a letter, actually a poem mm-hmm. from uh, a listener focusing on this case also. And it was very t- touching, I thought. Uh, Wells and his team uh, did some fine writing in this series of commentaries. This poem really uh, rose to that level. It was a, an excellent um, piece of um, literature by one of his listeners.
2: I agree. I thought it was really well done and, and it, he kind of needed it. I mean, cause as Vincent was saying, he, it, the whole, this seems a lot more just like a guy reacting to a lot of things. And then all of a sudden you get to hear his eloquence and his uh, beautiful presentation of the poem. And I think it it, it elevated the whole show somewhat. Yeah. And, and I thought that was important. Kathy, sure. what were your
4: thoughts? Well, I wanted to comment and ask a question about sort of Orson trying to own this story, but he does admit that his investigators are actually the NAACP. And and I'm I'm kind of curious about why why is Orson is doing this on purpose? Is that because he wants to be an ally of the NAACP and bring himself on as another spokesperson? Because he could have presented this as an I am working in concert. He could have mentioned the NAACP more. I am working in concert with this you know, um, uh, a worthy organization. But but Orson is trying to say it's, it's me, you know, I mean, making these attacks and saying me, and as I said, I could try and understand it in several different ways, as in, um, uh, uh, certainly for African Americans in the South, to be known I mean, to say the words NAACP could get you fired from any job. I'm reading Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody, and she talks about she has teachers who cannot, African-American teachers who cannot say in Mississippi that they have any knowledge of the NAACP. So, you know, I'm just trying to sort of understand rhetorically as well as kind of politically why the group is not being brought into the conversation more.
2: Right. And I, I was thinking the same thing. And uh, I don't know, it, he makes it so difficult because had he not mentioned them at all, then you'd go, then you could say, oh, well, maybe he, you know, says this, there's a lot of heat in this story and I'll take the heat. I don't want NWACP to take the heat. They could get, you know, who knows where they can't even have a, a, an NAACP anymore. Right. So. So I'll take the heat, but he mentions them. So he's not completely taking all the heat. Um, and, and yet if I, if I, what I heard, which I thought was probably incorrect or probably him, I don't know. Uh, my thought, it, it sounded like he was essentially saying my investigators and the NAACP investigators figured yeah. this out, or whatever.
4: Where, where uh, but I really actually, have trouble
2: believing he had any yeah. investigators. I really think it was all the NAACP. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, I think he purposefully makes it unclear whether his investigate he has separate investigators or his investigators the whole time were the NAACP and the um, FBI. I mean, I, I I'm going to take a roundabout way of um, saying what I think about this situation, but I do think that the the woman at the end's poem was was. Fantastic, you know. Um, she makes a point essentially about how we need, even though it's inconsequential to attack racism with words. Um, I'm just going to you got to keep doing it. And She sort of says it's just like little pebbles you put in a in a slingshot, but I'm just gonna keep throwing it. But then she says that you know Wells is the one with the sword, essentially doing this, and it's unclear um, whether or not the NAACP told Wells. That hey, we need you to be the mouthpiece for this. We need you to sort of front this on because, like Kathy was alluding to, there's issues. Or it's another example of Wells, admittedly, taking credit for things that people of color did. I mean, he of course is a champion for um, this movement, but he's certainly fallible of that and has been historically in his career. And so it's unclear exactly what's happening here. But I think um, the evidence suggests in this new in this um, commentary particularly about just how decentered he is from all of this. I mean, not only does he get Wood- Woodard's name wrong, he maybe is mocking Shoal with the name thing, but I'm not sure. I really don't think he knows for sure um, Shoal's name. And and the reason is because the next episode, he doesn't, he says, oh, it's for sure Shoal. He doesn't sort of try to play a mockery of it. At the same point, um, you know, he sort of keeps stumbling he, he, he mentioned specifically that he's reading off of wires and newspaper articles. This isn't breaking news. In fact, it's been in the African American newspapers for a while, and even papers like the New York Times, the Philadelphia Tribune are covering this story days before and so to me it's just suggesting that wells is sort of p- picking the stuff up all together yeah. as quickly as he can, and trying to say okay I'm going to be the champion of this. And I think it serves a purpose, but we shouldn't forget all the work, particularly of people of color, behind this. The same thing is that, in many ways, Wells was, um, you know, he brought this back to major light, but it really didn't get picked up too much by, you know, white newspapers. And in fact, perhaps the biggest celebrity that was pushing this movement was Joe Lewis, who was a far bigger celebrity than Orson Wells, both in communities of color, and in, in white households. And you know, if you read the um, African American newspapers, you talk hear all about his speeches and his campaigns to raise Woodard money. So again, I, I, we need to give Wells credit, certainly, um, for what he's doing. He's taking a stand, but we shouldn't forget that um, if he has a sword entirely, it was given to him by the NAACP and people of color working below him.
3: There is one other explanation, which is that um, this was broadcast on um, the ABC radio network and his audience was, I, I would speculate, largely white. And it is possible, particularly if he was trying to have some influence in the South, it's possible that Wells avoided mentioning the NAACP too often because he might have felt that would dilute whatever influence he had with um, with uh, the, the, the with, larger yeah. with
4: southern whites. That's that's a very good point. That's a very but, good point. But you're
3: you're right, Vincent. There's no way to know for sure, and uh, yeah. it it did seem like he was. It, it wasn't totally uh, extemporaneous, but it did seem like he was, um, uh, some of this was um, somewhat impromptu.
4: Well, I wanted to ask, did anybody understand why he suddenly shifted from uh, South Carolina to Texas politics? Um, I guess it was about corruption, uh, but it just seems like Orson, who cares? You know, I mean, so, and yet, um, as a a faculty member at, at UT, um, it was a little busy biz- and i haven't been there i've only been there eight years and i don't know the long history of the university that well but it was kind of odd to hear these names bandied about because um uh, uh, the uh, jesse jones um and uh and and uh governor jester are enshrined in our campus in big buildings and uh, and rainy, the president who is being pushed out of the university is, as I said, symbolized we've got streets named after him and the, the, um, uh, the university's largest single dormitory is named after Jester and my own communication building is named after Jones. So, you know, it's part that we're, you know, connecting to those, um, you know, uh, the, the same thing about Monument Avenue in Richmond, let's just say the uh, memorializing of a powerful people at the time for various reasons and yet 50 70 years later the buildings the monuments still exist
3: right
4: so it was a little on un, un, strange so i
3: i do have a theory about that kathy Um, uh, philip e fox who got the, mm. the bulk of um wells diatribe here um, was quite the figure and i thought it was really interesting and dramatically interesting, the way he played with the murder. Uh, I I read a little bit about this. I'd never heard of the man before, but um, apparently he was uh, quite an influential guy in the uh, Texas Ku Klux Klan. Um, The the story is that when he was working for the Klan as as, uh, one of their PR people, um, he uh, had had, uh, allegedly, reportedly, had had an extramarital affair and he thought that one of the lawyers for the Klan knew about it and was going to out him, and so he walked down to that guy's office and shot him to death. Uh, he was put on trial. His defense was insanity. <laughs> I guess maybe because this guy made him crazy with the threat of of uh, exposure hanging over his head, and it worked. And he was, but he was convicted of murder. Oh, convicted. It was. He was supposed to have served a life sentence, but obviously he got out because twenty years later. He's wow. working at this uh, this PR firm that supports um, um, Buf- Buford um, Jester, um, who was also an interesting figure. Texas has some interesting personalities. Oh.
4: That's and, like uh, a Chinese curse, isn't it? So. Yeah,
3: exactly. And and Jester was governor for uh, two years. He's the uh, only governor of Texas to have died in office. And and I think Wells introduced all this not only because it was dramatically interesting but because of the, the element of uh, segregation which um, w- played a part in all of this obviously because of the Klan connection. But Jester himself, Buford Jester, was a, by Texas standards was a moderate. Even though he opposed Harry Truman, he did support <laughs> Texas civil rights. Uh, he grew up in segregated schools but he kind of worked to push the, the politics in a more progressive direction. By Texas standards. So I, I think whether Wells just found this as fascinating as I did in learning about it, or whether he was deliberately trying to have another angle on the larger issue of racism, uh, I'm not sure. It's also probably the case that Wells wanted to mix things up a little bit and not do the whole 15 minutes on one well, topic as much as that well, might merit
4: well, thank you so much, Terry. That's far more than I knew before. And I can say, thank God there is nothing named Fox on the <laughs> campus as far as I know. Until yeah. I go back and start looking some more. But but thank you. I appreciate. It.
2: Sure. Well, he did yeah, get a whole I... news network named after him, but other than that, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> no, no, no relation. Uh, but anyway, but uh, uh the part where he wouldn't mention, danced around saying it, the, the murder, and then he does eventually say it, and then he comes across as saying, oh, I shouldn't have said that or whatever. Do, was your feeling that he truly wasn't going to mention or didn't? No, or Was he supposed no. to mention but all of a sudden he playing,
3: did, or you think was that was like, just for dramatic us. purposes? He was, was playing with us. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the, case had been, so the case had been tried... And excuse me, and, and he was convicted 20 years before, 23 yeah. years before. So yeah, no. so it
2: could definitely be mentioned.
3: So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, a matter of public record and no,
2: yeah. Okay. That was interesting. <laughs> and then and now back to Thank Vincent, you. I had a question for Vincent that, that I don't know. if the timing of the ending of um, his presentation of around the world in 80 days, and uh, this going on roughly the same time. There was no connection between the two, like where this, where somebody said, okay, we were gonna go for a few more weeks, but he's done because he's doing this, this story or because he's, he's talking about this. Um, was there any connection that you know of or was it just happenstance that it was ending at the same time
1: this was beginning? Um, I'll have to look more into it. I have not seen any connection thus far. Um, you know, immediately after this, um, he, I mean, the next thing he'll do is he'll try to make the around the world movie in the UK, um, which doesn't really go anywhere. Cause he has the contract with Alexander Corda, who produced around the world. So maybe him leaving the show is him going to the UK for a small period of time. But the next thing he does is the lady from Shanghai, which, um, you know, he shoots in Los Angeles and a little bit on a boat on, um. Errol Flynn's boat in particular Um, but yeah I'm not 100% sure I'm keeping looking for it in the press but I haven't seen it and there's not much in the archive
4: I might this would be kind of the dullest end of the Broadway season sort of you know I mean because I think new shows like start in the fall the same way new radio shows or things like that so on the one hand it's great if you can make any money you know, so but the, I guess there comes a time at which if you can't even pay the salaries, you know, at some point you just have to close down a production and, and yeah. let the theater go dark.
1: But um, yeah, they were they were burning for, you know, essentially two months, almost two months. And, you know, I, I have to I give Wells credit. I mean, as much as he was uh, using the radio as his microphone for to try to save this show and build up the show. He's not a public crybaby about, uh, you know, about it burning. You know, he was seemed so angry at critics and so angry at people not to come see his show at the, you know, we sort of forget that. We're like way past that now. But uh, you could almost imagine him like coming on the radio and be like, oh, by the way, my show failed, everybody. No one came <laughs> to save me. But he... <laughs> I was sort of waiting for that, actually. But um, <laughs> it never happened. So good on him for sort of moving on. Yeah. Um, you know, he obviously That's has fabulous. more important fish to fry here so uh,
4: can i also just m- mention wherever you stick this or, or delete it daryl but while searching for other things um in the entertainment press i found one article from 1940s late 46 early 47 in either broadcasting a variety that mentions almost all the liberal comment politically liberal commentators are losing their programs going off the air because sponsors are too skittish to um, uh, sponsor the shows. Conservative critics at this, so this is you know, the, the great uh, revulsion against um, uh, uh, Rooseveltian liberalness and the, the, the tremendous sort of conservative swing of uh, of, um, American political culture in the time period. But I thought it was interesting to to sort of learn they didn't mention necessarily Orson's show by name because he was already off the air, but the the article was saying that anybody else liberal was sort of losing their shows. The other thing I found was that the year before I found one of these big books um, charting uh, sort of rating average um, Nielsen or um, audience r- ratings uh, yeah. uh, sort of uh, averaged over a year. And in 1945, on a Sunday afternoon, Orson was getting a 4.7. And ratings, which, you know, for that time of day, you know, I mean. Uh, pretty a Sunday good, right? It was, was fairly good. Yeah. So I was, I was pleased. They did not list him for 46 because the show does shut down. Right. Uh. In in September. But uh, um. So uh. You know. As as I've been trying to do some research to try and understand who was listening, how many people were listening, what kind of a soapbox he had here. So.
2: Yeah.
1: Interesting. That's fascinating. Interesting. Um. One 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 thing I wanted to mention too, and see what other people thought is, I noticed in this one I wasn't sure if it was because you know as my theory is he's sort of trying to pull this story together with Isaac Woodard, but you know he again repeats. His, um, his threat or his promise uh, to Officer X that I will come after you. I will follow you. I will be at your trial. I will, you know, keep following your life. You will not forget me. Here in this episode, I don't know if he's tired. I don't know if he's losing uh, sort of the vigor that he had before, but it doesn't seem as bold. It doesn't seem as like really impassioned. I mean, the first time he did it, it's like in your face. And this time, maybe just by comparison, it's not as. Um, strong, maybe it's still strong enough, but to me, it's a sign of what will come, which is, you know, again, ten years, nine years later, he's not mentioning Shull by name, and there's really no evidence that he lived up to this promise, at least in the long run, and we might find out that he never mentions Shull again after, not the next episode, but maybe after that, so... I'll I'll
2: jump on that. Um, My my gut feeling is the, the first time is he's Officer X, and we will find you, we will bring you to light, we will, all of that. Well, now he's not Officer X anymore. Now he actually is a person and they found him. And so he's, and he mentions, you know, we succeeded in that, we we found who he is, We right? And so I think he thinks that half of the battle is over and now it's just, we'll continue to follow you but it's not the same emphasis as when they didn't even know who he was. So that's kind of what my feeling was on this but I noticed the same thing. Yeah.
4: I, I wonder if there's something that if he knew that maybe the the uh, uh, eventually the wheels of the legal system uh, were turning and that to say too much might work into the hands of the defense, uh, you know, that some, I, I don't know, but. Uh.
3: I imagine the ABC lawyers might've weighed in on this too and, you know, given yeah.
2: him yeah, it's hard to know what all the pressures were that were going on. I mean, he probably had pressures on every side. And it certainly, he seems like he's pretty rattled in this episode. Oh.
4: Sir, just as you say, because this was this very same time in which the NBC censors were um, uh, bleeping... A Fred Allen off the air, you know, uh, taking him a blank for daring to to complain about network vice presidents. So you're absolutely right to think that that we just don't happen to know what powerful uh uh um, network forces could get in the way and go. Oh, you can't say that.
2: Right. Uh, Well, the other side of it too. Do um, we even do we know? Has he been told? You got seven weeks left, and then you're off. I mean, I don't know if he's oh, if he, he just figured he out would, he he's gotten canceled from this as well and he,
4: he would know. know you would know by this point if your option you know i mean if you're not getting picked up anymore, right easy,
2: and so that so. would think would have a lot to do with how much effort and everything else he puts into this i would think
4: although you might want to go out you know what, so. it'd be
2: nice yeah yeah There's one Harry, other element
3: there? To this, uh, yeah one other element in this commentary that uh if you blink you miss it uh near the end he talks about the uh, anglo-american Palestine Commission. Uh, This is um, roughly two years before the state of Israel is created, and obviously there are a lot of uh, negotiations going on before this, but uh, Kathy mentioned earlier that uh, he sort of made this left turn from uh, from the Isaac Woodard case to uh, speaking of Texas uh, politics, but this one to me came out of absolutely nowhere and maybe it was something that he'd been wanting to talk about it and had, I think in previous commentaries alluded to, um, but he certainly didn't talk about it for very long. Right. And uh, uh, I don't know, I, I guess he just ran out of time.
2: Yeah, I guess so. What and speaking of running take? out of time, we, <laughs> we should probably cut it there. Um, I love having these 30 minute intros to a 14 minute show, but it's, it's all right.
4: They're, they're no, it.
2: actually, I have not received ever a single complaint about us going too long or anything like that, which is always good. And folks,
3: well, I have, but it's mostly from my family.
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 no, but we have received comments that our introductions, some folks listen to those and then they don't even listen to Orson. <laughs> but <laughs> please listen to Orson as well, because that's what, that's what we're here for. So, uh, anyway. We'll turn it over to Orson, and he'll take us from here, and then we'll be back for the fifth and uh, supposedly final time that he talks uh, about our our friend Isaac uh, Woodard, and uh, we shall see how how that one goes. I think he's going to talk about it even more in future weeks, but we shall see, right? We none of us know because we haven't listened to the commentaries. But luckily, we have all of these commentaries. And speaking of that, I just want to mention one thing about the commentaries. From my kind of figuring, I think we have every single commentary. I don't think we're missing any, we were missing one. And then we found that one and we did an intro to it a few weeks ago. Uh, So I I just, I'm so delighted. Uh, Like I said, if we would have done this two years ago, we would have had 10 presentations and that would be it. And now we have what, 60 of them or something or 55 or who knows, a lot. Anyway, it's been great. And uh, we'll continue to bring them to you and uh, close out. The rest of the commentaries are about seven weeks left and uh, then they'll be done so seven or eight something like that anyway thanks everybody and we'll see you guys next time
0: this is orson well speaking a motion picture in which i play a part was scheduled for a couple of days running last week in aiken south carolina but the film was banned well i'm used to being banned i've been banned by whole governments the nazis in germany have banned me and the fascists of italy and spain have banned me here at home The merest mention of my name is forbidden by Mr. Hearst to all his subject newspapers. But to be outlawed by an American city is a new experience. The movie in question is neither controversial nor obscene. But I am in it, and for the taste of Aiken, that makes any movie too offensive to be endured. Not only was the actual celluloid driven out of the city limits as with a fiery sword, but in defense of civic sensitivities and to protect the impressionable of Aiken's youth from the shock of my name and likeness, a detachment of police officers working under the direction of the city council itself solemnly tore down such posters as the local theater manager had been rash enough to put up by way of advertisement and burnt same together with all printed matter having reference to me in a formal bonfire in the public streets. I'm also informed that I've been somewhat less officially hanged in effigy. And while I have an apology to offer Aiken, it's been suggested that I would be ill-advised to deliver it in person. Since I brought to your attention the case of Isaac Woodward, the case has grown into an issue of the most heated popular concern. It deserves all the national interest it's getting. Isaac Woodward is the veteran whose eyes were beaten out of his head by a policeman in the streets of a a place in South Carolina that Isaac Woodward thought was Aiken. He said so in an affidavit, and when I read his affidavit on this program, the mayor of Aiken, the chief of police and others, subsequently preoccupied with the public burning of my name and picture, sent affidavits of their own protesting innocence. My problem was the choice of affidavits. The boy had been blinded. That was the one clear, brutal fact. And I stuck to that with a promise to Aiken's officialdom that I would apologize for publishing the veteran's testimony when and if my investigators could show a decent doubt. The records were amazingly brief. The policeman who delivered Woodward to the hospital was not named. This is most unusual. The place where the attack occurred was not mentioned in the report. This is almost unheard of. But my investigators, the investigators of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the investigators of the FBI, have together narrowed down the search to the town of Batesburg, some 19 miles from Aiken. And this morning comes word that the search has been narrowed still further. I have before me wires and press releases to the effect that a policeman of Batesburg, a man by the name of Shaw, or Shore, or Shull, it is given three different ways here. The flash is just before us. Chief L.L. Shaw, pronounce it however you wanted, or want to, has admitted that he was the police officer who blinded Isaac Woodward, 30 miles from Aiken. In South Carolina. This is in Batesburg. I'll give you uh, a few more of the facts. He's corroborated an army statement, has Police Chief Shull or Shaw, that ex serviceman Isaac Woodward Jr. was struck on the head with a blackjack. Chief Shull or Shaw says he was called to a bus one night last February to arrest Woodward, who, and I'm reading from a press o- association, he said, was drunk. Shaw claimed to have hit Woodward across the head when Woodward tried to take away his blackjack. He added that the blow may have landed in the veteran's eyes. Shaw or Shaw, the police chief, described the eyes as swollen the next day when Woodward was fined in the recorders court and said he then drove Woodward to a veteran's hospital at a doctor's suggestion. Now, you'll remember from the affidavit and from further reports of our investigators that uh, Woodward said he'd been offered liquor after he was attacked by the police... Uh, which he refused. And uh, investigators of the Nas- National Association of the Advancement of Colored Peoples have discovered three other occupants of that bus, all of whom claim in affidavits that Woodward was not drunk, nor was he drinking. Woodward, you remember, appealed for medical aid. And uh, also, according to uh, the UP, Shaw or Shore or Shaw... Brands these stories as lies. He has volunteered no information for this. He was unearthed by by investigation. Well, the good citizens of Aiken must be surely so glad to hear this that my apology tended herewith, and as per promise, most abjectly, will come as merely incidental comfort. Batesburg, unlike Aiken, has turned out to be to blame. The search is narrowed down. We're getting close to the truth. We have the admission of a man that he... He was the officer, the officer whom I called X. Well, I would like to remind Officer X, otherwise known as Shull or Shaw, of another promise. Promise I made to the blinded Isaac Woodward. If Chief Shull or Shaw is listening to me now, and it's more than possible that he is... Gives me pleasure to repeat that promise. Officer X, we know your name now. Now that we've found you out, we'll never lose you. If they try you for your crime, I am going to watch the trial, Chief Shaw. If they jail you, I'm going to wait for your first day of freedom. You won't be free of me. I want to see who's waiting for you at the prison gates. I want to know who will acknowledge that they know you. I'm interested in your future. I will take note of all your destinations. Assume another name and I will be careful that the name you would forget is not forgotten. Officer Schull or Shaw, police chief of the city of Batesburg, I will find means to remove from you all refuge. You can't get rid of me. We have an appointment. You and I. And only death can cancel it. Our scene changes now to the sovereign state of Texas. They're holding a little election. They held it. It was so close they're going to have to have a runoff. It's nothing important. It's just a governorship at stake. It's nothing to be excited about. It's just whether we're going to have a democratic education and freedom in Texas or not. It's nothing to be concerned about. Just just a matter of who will control the Democratic delegation from Texas the next Democratic National Convention. Of course, there's some people in Texas who are excited. Old Jesse Jones and the oil interests are very head-up, so are the railroad people. They've poured half a million cash onto the barrelhead. They want to elect a man they can trust. The man they can trust is named Buford Jester. He's the railroad commissioner at the present time, so naturally the railroad people are backing him. Old Jesse Jones hates Harry Truman and Henry Wallace, so he doesn't want just his opponent, a Truman-Wallace man, to win. On the other side of the fence is an avowed new dealer, Homer Rainey, Dr. Homer Rainey, who knows wherever he speaks. He was president of the University of Texas just a little while back when the big money boys ganged up and knocked him out of his job. You remember there was something very close to rioting among the students, but Rainey's out. So now Rainey is running for governor with money still piled up on the opposite side of the fence. Mr. Mr. Jester is spending money in great lumps, and herein hangs a tale. One of the mediums Mr. Jester is using is a recently organized public relations and advertising firm named Watson Associates of Dallas, Texas. I have a photo stand of the registration certificate of Watson Associates filed with a county clerk in Dallas, Texas, on March 14, 1946, at 3.06 p.m. It shows that the first name listed of those who swore they will conduct the business of Watson Associates is that of a very interesting gentleman named Philip E. Fox of Dallas, Texas. Now, I am particularly interested in Mr. Fox because of the fact that he is now one of candidate Buford Jester's advisors and aides. And if Mr. Jester becomes governor of Texas, he'd give a lot of power to those who helped elect him. So who is Philip E. Fox? Philip E. Fox is an ex-convict. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Everyone is entitled to a fair chance. But Mr. Philip E. Fox was convicted of a crime which... For the moment, I'm not permitted to name on this radio program, but I promise to name it next week when I can show the lawyers gathered here my proof for the contention. Philip E. Fox was convicted of this nameless crime on December 22, 1923, in Atlanta, Georgia. Even that is forgivable, perhaps, although it isn't usually considered very nice to have ex-cons and convicted uh, I can't name the crime, working for you in a political campaign. But there's one more X about Philip E. Fox of Dallas, Texas, which interests me even more. Philip E. Fox is the former publicity director of the Ku Klux Klan. Philip E. Fox was editor of the Klan's official publication, The Nighthawk. In fact, the murder for... Excuse me, I should never have said that word. For which Fox, uh, it is claimed, went to jail, involved his shooting an attorney for an opposing faction of the Ku Klux Klan. This is the same Philip E. Fox who is vigorously assisting in the campaign to elect Big Money Buford Jester as governor of the sovereign state of Texas. I, uh, thought the voters of Texas might like to know about these things. Well, scene changes again. This time it's Washington. And, uh, we find ourselves in the Statler Hotel on the ninth floor. Clean, cool room. A phone is ringing. The man who rented the room has just opened the door when he hears the annoying rumble. He answers something like this. Yes, Morris, this is dash, dash. I'm just back from the State Department. Of course, I'd be glad to tell you all about what happened. Sure, come on up. The speaker was one of the six American members of the Anglo-American-Palestine Commission. He got up the phone, turned to the newspaper man who'd come upstairs with him, and swore bitterly. Those poor, miserable people, he said, having to duck around corners all the time, pleading for information like they live behind barbed wire. Why does the world have to be like this? Why must the fate of millions of people be settled in star chamber proceedings? Why are those striped-pants diplomats so determined to reduce the Jews to the status of second-class citizenship? The newspaper man sat there coldly in the hotel room, a little cynically. He'd heard visitors to Washington talk like this before, but rarely with such bitterness. The citizen-turned-statesman was mad clean through. He resumed his outburst. You know, there were 10 of us sitting in that room. There, there wasn't a Jew among us, just the acting Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, Henry Grady, the two men just back from London who tried to sell Europe's Jews into the partition ghetto in Palestine, and we six, the American members of the Anglo-American Commission. It was ghastly the way the State Department tried to rationalize it. They were looking for an out. We six men had spent three months studying the issue. Six Englishmen appointed by the British cabinet were also on the commission. We were unanimous in our findings. We agreed perfectly. Even the British went along on every single point. That's how obvious the Palestine situation is. We all went to London together. We heard weeks of testimony here. Then we went to Palestine and uh, heard the Jews tell their story. And we heard the Arabs tell their story. And we were still unanimous. Now the State Department, fawning over the British Foreign Office, is trying to sell us out. Man settles down his chair, lights a cigarette newspaper man takes notes. The voice continues. One of the members of our commission is Billy Phillips. You may have heard of him. He's been a diplomat for years, a State Department man for decades, but he's an honest man. He was an ambassador until recently. He was an ambassador to India and minister to London. When he heard the British Foreign Office proposal, he was violent. When he heard we were thinking of accepting it, you know what he asked? He asked, how long, Mr. Acheson, does the State Department plan to continue as a tale of the British kite? Of course, this is all off the record, concluded the news source. Of course, replied the newspaper man. Of course, says Orson Welles, who got this story from the newspaper man. It's all off the record. Let's let the people sell the people for oil. Let them sell people for alliances and bases in the Middle East, of course. But let's keep it off the record. I wonder if we should. The word from Paris is unhappy. More of that next week. I think I have just time for now to read you a letter. Before I do, I'd just like to make this comment about international organization, though. I do think that we ought to stop giving up hope every day when we read about what's happening in Paris. I think we ought to realize that the best hope for international organization, the way the world is run nowadays, is the separate, selfish need of every nation for world peace. We mustn't expect a shiny, ready-made millennium in our time. Well, here's the letter, dear Mr. Wells. Some women would bake you a cake or knit you a necktie, but here's a poem, and it's from Dorothy Littleworth, who I see lives in Buffalo, and I liked her poem, and I'm going to read it because I just have time for it. It says for Orson Wells. There is no cozy warmth about this shame, as one might feel who shyly blushed at praise. There is a bitter, cold, consuming flame, a knowledge we must live with all our days. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I hold these truths to be self-evident. There is no incantation will prevent the murder of a black man or restore to him his pride or give him back his sight. Words are but pebbles on a homemade sling against this wickedness, but I will fling them ceaselessly with all my little might. It is some comfort that your arm can bring the broadsword of a champion to the fight. Thank you, Dorothy Littlewort, for that poem. Thank you for letting me read it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for letting me join you. And please let me join you again next week, same time, same station. Until then, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.